you know, when a customer came and ordered a mochaccino, I didn't really know what it was. So I had to ask the customer and the customer said, well, I don't know. I think it's with chocolate, <laughs> you know. Because we had bought some Kenyan coffee through, I don't even remember who. And then we received news, you know, six months later that the farmers hadn't got paid yet, which was terrible, you know. I was a believer of transparency and all these kind of things, but then I realized, you know, there's nothing transparent about my business model. Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the Fifth Wave podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, editor-in-chief of coffee business magazine, Fifth Wave. And today, we're having a conversation with Tim Wendelboe, legend and founder of the Oslo-based roastery that exemplifies the Nordic specialty coffee movement. We featured Tim in our Careers in Coffee episode, but we were only able to include a handful of the many insights that he offered in his interview. So in this bonus episode, we're giving you the full conversation with Tim. Here he discusses the business principles he used to build one of the most iconic roasteries in the world, how he manages his cafe operationally, including the details on his internal training program, and the challenges coffee growers have in creating financially sustainable coffee farms, and why he is so focused on supply chain transparency. So grab yourself a coffee, sit back and enjoy this conversation with Tim Wendelboe. So welcome, Tim. Thank you. Where do we start? World Brister Champion, a coffee purist. Your name is synonymous, I think, with the Norwegian, the Nordic coffee experience that really began a total revolution in coffee. I'd love to hear your early journey. Where did it all begin? It actually started, I was done with the high school in Norway. This was in 1998. At that time, all the boys had to go to the military and I didn't really want to go to the military. And I also didn't want to study in the university because I was kind of tired of school. I used to work in a grocery store, like part-time on the side of my studies. Kind of got tired of that as well after being there since I was 15. So when I was 19, done with high school, I decided to quit and then looking for a new job it was pretty hard to find actually we didn't have you know instagram and internet and all these kind of things to help us search for jobs so i basically just had to walk the streets in oslo looking for notes in the windows i passed a cafe that were looking for people and i got a job in that cafe and that turned out to be one of the first kind of new modern coffee shops in oslo it wasn't the first but it was kind of maybe the fourth or fifth coffee shop that had opened in oslo in the kind of Starbucks model where you have an espresso machine and uh, yeah that was in September 98 that I started I worked full-time like we were only two people working full-time and both of us started at the same day and there were only two part-time people working that had been there for a couple of weeks so nobody in the store actually knew anything about making coffee or what we were doing at all we didn't have any training or anything so the owner of the store turned out to be Solbergen Hansen, which is one of the famous roasters here in Norway. Absolutely. And kind of one of the pioneers of specialty coffee, at least here in the Nordics. So we had to kind of go up there and we got like a three-hour crash course in coffee, which covered anything from green coffee to a little bit of roasting. And then at the end, we kind of learned how to make espresso, the basics, I guess. But the day after, I was, you know, first shift in the store. <laughs> wow. 
you know, when a customer came and ordered a mochaccino, I didn't really know what it was. So I had to ask the customer and the customer said, well, I don't know. I think it's with chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> That's real precision, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's part of my personality that I really dislike doing stuff that I don't know how to do. So I very quickly started trying to search for information where I could learn how to make better drinks. And the worst thing when you're working in service and you're trying your best is when you get complaints from customers. And we used to get them all the time. Either the food wasn't good enough or the, especially the coffee, you know, was terrible. So uh, that's kind of started my journey on starting to ask questions to anyone who knew anything about coffee. And I started visiting other coffee shops, uh, looking at what they were doing. There was one kind of famous one in Oslo already, which was called Java. And that was owned by the first world barista champion, Robert Thuresen. Quickly after, it was like six months after the owner asked me if I wanted to compete in a barista competition. And I said, you know, I don't really know how to do it. And, but he said, yeah, it doesn't matter. It's just fun. You know, you'll, you'll show up and you make some uh, coffee and then it's just fun. And that was actually the kind of start of the, what we know as the World Barista Championship. It started in Norway and this was the second time they organized it. I think it was early 99 maybe that i don't remember so i competed and i did you know not terrible i didn't come uh, top three or anything but it was very good motivation because the judges were kind of giving me a very good feedback and they told me what they liked and what i could improve and so on so that was kind of a good motivation for me and then i decided to try again the following year and started training for that and 20 years later, I'm here. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so it was a coincidence. I didn't actually drink coffee. I didn't know, even know what a coffee shop was. It just happened to be one of the few jobs that I could get because I was 19. I couldn't get a job in a bar because we're not allowed to serve spirits when you're below 21, I think. It was kind of perfect timing because everything was new. Nobody really knew anything about coffee. And so everyone had to kind of learn from each other and push each other to become better and I remember, you know, the day before the first competition, I was, I got my hands on a VHS cassette with the David Schomer's latte art training. And I was watching that all night, trying to learn how to make hearts and, and rosettas in the cappuccino. And I didn't really succeed in the competition, but at least it looked maybe, you know, somewhat like an apple or... <laughs> an apple. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of unique times, I think, because uh, it was so new and everyone was kind of very open-minded and, and no one had any preconceptions of what espresso or any of these things should be. You know, we were trying to explore how can we make it taste better? And that was the start of it. It seems as though that motivation from the judges of that first competition, was that a seminal moment? Was there any you know, moment where you just knew this was your career? It was an alternative to going to the military and, of course... Make coffee, not war. Yeah, and also an alternative to going to university. And I, I never really thought about it as being uh, my career in the beginning. After a couple of years, when I started doing really well in the barista competitions, I was so sucked into this coffee world that I, I started thinking, you know, maybe I can actually open my own place one day and, and have my own business it didn't take very long either until I started running that coffee shop that I started in. And after a few years, we were asked to reopen some older sister stores of that uh, chain and also open new stores. So after like three or four years, I was 
kind of head of quality control and training for six coffee shops in Oslo. And there was no way back for me. I was totally into coffee and, and wanted to just do more and more and, and raise the quality. And then after winning the world championship in 2004, of course, I got a lot of opportunities to travel and, and learn from other cultures and other people and quickly understood that I had to leave the company I was working for and, and do something on my own because I felt like I was held back a little bit. Not because the owner did it on purpose. It was just the day-to-day -day running of that company kind of took all my time and I didn't have time to develop myself as a coffee person, so to say. So was it in 2005 that you opened your own store? I actually left uh, Stockflitz, which was this company, in January 2006. And then I opened my own store June 2007. Okay. But So it took about a year to kind of plan and get the funding in place, you know, <laughs> yeah. getting the ideas in the right place. What would you say are the differences between working for yourself compared to being an employee? Yeah, well, I had a lot of freedom uh, when I worked at Stockflat, so I was never kind of held back by a person. Having said that, I, I also really dislike working for other people. <laughs> I, I like to make my own decisions. But um, I think the, the main difference is that uh, instead of kind of trying to make a format that should work for six stores, uh, where you have, you know, 80 employees that you need to train in a system that works to kind of create a, a, an even standard of quality for all stores. Uh, going from six stores to just running one store in a roastery is, you feel a lot more flexible. You can change things overnight. It doesn't take a lot of time to train people. Also, because it's kind of my own business and my own philosophy, and I develop it in the way that I would like it to be. And so then you kind of, you're allowed to buy coffees that only you like, you know, you're not kind of trying to please everyone uh, anymore. You're, you're just trying to please yourself and push coffee forward in the way that I personally would like to see it go instead of trying to cover any customer needs, uh, so to say. Of course, in the beginning, it was really hard. Like we got a lot of critique for starting to roast very light and uh, this didn't taste like coffee and so on. But then you start to gain followers and very loyal customers who kind of support you through thick and thin. And also when you work with a small group of people, like now we're 14 uh, staff uh, in my company, but we used to be like six. And once you kind of get used to a certain type of quality, like a light roast, for instance, then it's very, very difficult to go back to something else. So they kind of become believers in a way. <laughs> it's almost like a religion. <laughs> Yeah, so I think I feel a lot more flexible when it's my own company and it's, it's a small company, but also I put my head on the chopping board. If something goes wrong, you know, you, you feel it more personal. You take it more personal if something goes wrong. When you decided to set, you know, your own business up, what was the original plan? And how has that original plan worked out compared to where you are now? Yeah, actually I have a, a business plan that I spent like uh, almost a year developing. If I read that today, the core of it is what we are doing today as well. So our business is to try to be one of the best roasters in the world. Not that that's measurable, but that's kind of our hairy goal, so to say. And then we also want to be a place where people come to learn about coffee. And that's kind of our core business. We're in the business of selling coffee and kind of nothing else. <laughs> 
of course the business uh, develops over years and like we sell more coffee now than we used to so we had to remove our roaster from the store and open in a bigger space where we could only focus on production and in a way we are kind of doing exactly what we have been doing for, since 2007 it's just we're using other tools to communicate instead of waiting for the customer to come into our store we're using social media which obviously didn't exist back then and also, what I kind of didn't expect when I started was that I would focus so much on traveling to farms and working much, much closer with farmers. I didn't really have any experience with that when I opened my, my own business and I didn't really know how coffee trade worked at all. So um, in my head, I would just you know buy green coffee through Solberg and Hansen or we didn't really have that many importers back then either. So... And I would like go on auction and buy them on Cup of Excellence and so on. And then I realized, you know, if I want to have a consistent high quality, I need to visit the farmers and work together with them in order to make that happen. <laughs> so that's kind of become my job in the later years that I'm buying the green coffee and working closely with the farms and helping them develop the qualities that we want to buy. That brings us to a really important point. I mean, is coffee a career? Of course it is. I mean, coffee is an industry just like uh, wine can be and so on. So for me, I've had several careers in coffee. I started as a barista and I had like a career as a barista. And then when I opened my own business, I was more into roasting in the beginning at least. And uh, right before I opened my own business, I was also roasting for stocklets for a couple of years. So I kind of went from being a barista to a barista trainer and roaster, and then from that to a business owner. And now I'm kind of a business owner and a green coffee buyer, but I'm still kind of working with quality control of our roasting and so on. So I get tired of doing the same thing all the time. So for me, it's been a great industry to work in because I have been able to still work in the same industry or with the same product, but with many, many different things. And that's kind of what I like is to have days that are different from day to day and not do the same thing over and over again. But I, you know, I have a, one of my long-term employees, uh, Stephanie, she's been running my espresso bar and she's been working with me for almost 10 years now. And that's her career, you know. She's a highly skilled barista and she is a fantastic shop manager. And that's her career. And uh, we have roasters who are determined to, they just want to roast coffee for the rest of their lives. You have farmers who are farmers, you know, so definitely it's a, it's an industry where you can build a career, but sometimes you need to be a little bit smart about how you kind of do that, you know. You obviously need those people and people like Stephanie in your business, you know, so skilled and, and so loyal. Yeah. How do you go about recruiting? I would imagine you get a lot of job offers, you know, reverse job offers, I guess people wanting to work for you. Yeah, yeah, we do. What, what's the secret to, you know, having great people in your business? I used to be a, a guy that looked for people who had coffee skills. And then we would maybe hire those people and they didn't necessarily work well with our team. They didn't necessarily have good customer service skills and so on. So... In the later years, uh, we have actually changed a lot how we hire people. And for us, it's much, much more important that it's a person that fits into our team that has, how do you say, a yes mentality, we call it. Yeah. They say yes, and then they try to fix problems. 
We, we need people who are willing to work hard and to give that little extra when we need it. And that's kind of the most important. And if you're going to work as a barista, the number one is to have like an understanding of customer service. Because anyone can be trained in making good coffee. In our shop, we kind of have a system that you have to follow in order to make coffee. We don't have like a do whatever you like kind of attitude. It's, it's a very rigid system. Ooh, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And we can... It's, it's easy to teach anyone that the, the skill of making coffee in our coffee shop because it's easy to make coffee in our coffee shop. The machines are tuned, you know, we, we have routines to check quality all the time. But what is very, very difficult is to train people in customer service. If they don't have that kind of interest in helping people, it's really difficult, you know. You need to kind of have that intuition already built in, I think. You know, in the roastery, it's a different thing because they were more kind of looking for people who are systematic, that can work efficiently and so on. But primarily, they have to fit into our team and have a good attitude. You know, that's number one. And it doesn't matter who you are, as long as you kind of have the same yes mentality that we want to have in our company. Mm. And then it's a matter of, you know, paying people well and treating them with respect and trying to make a workplace that is nice to work in. You know, I, I've been an employee for many years as well, and I know how demotivating it can be if your salary is a little bit too low or if, you know, the working environment is not great. So we're trying to kind of nourish that to help people stay. And then also it's about stimulating people and you know, helping them learn more and, and progress. Uh, if they stagnate, they quickly get tired and, and leave the company. Really great insights. I think anyone who's in charge of HR or, or just, just people in general or, or small business owners, I think there's, there's some wonderful lessons there about sort of nurturing and stimulating employees, but as well as having that discipline and, you know, fantastic tips there. Yeah, and I think part of the key with our company is also that the, the frames you are working in is very, very strict. Like we have a very, very rigid system of everything and very good routines on most things. And that makes it much easier for people to know what to do. They're, they're not insecure. You know, everyone knows what to do every day. So if certain things aren't done, you can, people aren't afraid to tell a colleague, you know, oh, you forgot to do this, you know, <laughs> because if it doesn't get done, it, our system doesn't work. So I think being very clear, you know, on, on the tasks that people need to do every day is, is a good thing. And then once those tasks are done, they can have more creativity. Yeah. So absolutely no one walking into your store and your staff asking the customers how to make a cappuccino, right? <laughs> Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Could you give an example of just some of those systems? I mean, what, maybe the process that you go through when someone joins or... Uh, when you start working for us, let's say you start as a barista, you the first thing you do is actually to train with our staff for a couple of weeks. And what we, we teach you is not how to make coffee necessarily, but how to clean, when to fill up paper cups, you know, all these kind of things. We have a ring binder in the bar with a printed out Excel sheets where you have, we call it a daily task sheet. So every day of the week is printed on the sheet. And then you have maybe between 10 and 20 tasks that needs to be done during a day. And that's anything from, you know, dusting the lamps to cleaning the walls and floor and checking that the light bulbs are working and all these kind of things because every detail in a store is important and then once you kind of learn that system it's easy to show up to work because you just open that folder and you know exactly what to do that day 
And then, of course, you have the, the stuff that you don't have to write down, which is every morning you have to calibrate the espresso. Every afternoon you have to check the extraction and so on. So we teach people the kind of coffee stuff a little bit further into their training. And then they go through two days of intensive training with me where we, we don't really do that much practical coffee making anymore. It's just we make some coffee, we taste it, we talk about it, how to adjust when it tastes sour, how to adjust when it tastes bitter. I talk you know, a full day about how we buy coffee and, and how we work with farmers and how we roast. We do a lot of cupping. Once they kind of have done that, they can start making espresso and steaming milk in the bar where they're supervised by our kind of senior staff uh, until they feel comfortable being in a bar alone without any supervising them. And then, you know, we have systems for everything from cleaning to checking quality of the coffee and, and so on. Right, yeah. It's not very complicated. It's just there needs to be a system that's written down and routines that are written down that people can follow and learn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to move forward on to your, what you call your latest career, which is a, as a coffee buyer. When did your first farm experience happen and when did it, do you feel that became one of your most important paths in your career currently? <laughs> well, my first trip to Origin was actually very early, it was 2000, I think. And I went on like an organized trip to India with the SAAE. I was not a green coffee buyer back then, I was just a barista. So for me, it was just, you know, fun to be there. I think my first origin trip where I, I realized that I had to start working more directly with farmers was in Kenya and I was early 2008. And I went because we had bought some Kenyan coffee through, I don't even remember who, possibly through Solberg. And then we received news, you know, six months later that the farmers hadn't gotten paid yet, which was terrible, you know? I was a believer of transparency and all these kind of things, but then I realized, you know, there's nothing transparent about my business model when it comes to coffee buying. Mm. So I went to Kenya to try to kind of figure out how to buy coffee there. And then as I had bought some coffee in the Cup of Excellence, I also decided to go to Honduras to visit the farmer that I had bought coffee from there and quickly understood that it was probably more a coincidence that his coffee was good than anything else because his setup was very, very primitive. For instance, the, the fermentation tanks where you ferment coffee was very dirty. They were made out of wood and nothing was precision about it. And I was spending so much time in my own store trying to be precise about roasting and brewing and all these kind of things. And then I looked at the raw material and and there was nothing precise about it. So I also wanted to kind of understand why certain coffees tasted better than others and why certain coffees had longer shelf life than others and so on. It was during those two first trips where I realized, you know, I, I will never get good quality coffee until I kind of know that I'm getting good quality coffee. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't trust, you know, a small sample being sent to me. A small sample doesn't tell me anything. It, it can give me a result. I can taste it in the cup. I can roast it and taste it. But it, it won't tell the story of how the coffee was grown, what variety it is, how it was dried and processed, how it was stored. You know, I can't trust that product to be a high quality product when it arrives in Norway three months after I bought it, you know. So that's kind of uh, what triggered my interest in, in working more closely with farmers. And, and also, of course, the person that I met in Honduras, which is Hobnil Caceres Dios, 
He's a farmer I've been buying from since I think 2009 directly. And his attitude was, you know, yes, let's work together and improve quality. Because the only thing he wanted was to go and produce better coffee. <laughs> and that's exactly what I wanted. So it was a perfect match, so to say. Even your farmers need to have that yes attitude. I mean, it's brilliant. I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a view of what your normal routine was like pre-COVID in terms of <laughs> visits to farms. How many visits would you have a year? How much time would you spend out there? sort of traveling to origin? Well, just to take the routine first, like I would normally come and visit the farmers either pre-harvest or during harvest or right after harvest. And sometimes both pre and post harvest. That was kind of in the beginning where we had to make a plan together on how to work for the coming harvests. Uh, if there was something to improve, like uh, building new dryers or, you know, doing experiments or something. And then, of course, coming down post-harvest to see how it all went and taste the coffees and talk with the farmers to kind of evaluate. That was uh, kind of more common for me in the beginning. And then in the later years, because I've been working with the same producers for many years, most of the times I would just come at the end of the harvest to visit the farms, see if they can improve more for next year, taste the coffees, uh, select the coffees that I'm going to buy and so on. And of course, because I have my own farm in Colombia, I spent in the last three, four years, I've spent almost three months every year in Colombia on top of, you know, other travels. So... All in all, maybe five months of traveling every year. <laughs> and post-COVID, I haven't been traveling at all, actually. It's actually the first time in 15 years that I don't have any plane tickets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which feels, you know, uh, it's liberating in some way because uh, the good thing is that I've been working so closely with these farmers for many years. So we communicate regularly on WhatsApp and Facebook and Instagram and, and email. And this year was no problem. Although I couldn't go and visit them, they would just send me the samples and we have been communicating. And the quality I'm still able to get because they know what to do now. It's not like the quality doesn't make, it's not made by coincidence. It's a system that we have kind of implemented on each farm and that they're following. And of course, they're experimenting as well and sending me samples of that. And Yeah. So I'm, I'm actually very happy that this plan that I had, which was a long-term plan of trying to travel less actually, because if we train the farmers well and, and kind of agree on a system, then it means that I don't have to be there supervising, you know. I don't like to be supervising at all. I like people to progress and understand why they should do things in a certain way. Yeah. You know, if you were looking for new farmers, do you feel that technology now is advanced to such a point that you may be able to do a lot of that directly via technology uh, rather than actually a, mm. a farm visit? You know, for me personally, probably not. If I'm looking to buy coffee from a new origin or a new farm, I would have to go and visit the farm to kind of see where the critical points are for where the quality can be kind of compromised or also to just understand how the trade works in a new origin, for instance, or a new area or, you know, learning to know the farmer. It's, it's so important to have that interaction. And even a 20 minute farm visit isn't enough. You kind of have to spend time with the farmer because there's so many details that you just don't see, you know, d during a short visit or a phone call. So 
for me, it's absolutely crucial to go to the farm and to experience it and to take some time there to, to think about how, how can we make this coffee even better. And at the end of the day, it's also mainly about the person. You know, I know that I'm not buying the best coffee in Colombia, for instance, but I know that I'm working with one of the best persons in Colombia, <laughs> at least for me. You know, I'm sure there's another thousand or a hundred thousand farmers that I could work with in Colombia, but uh, Elias that I'm working with is, you know, he understands what I want, and and we have a, a very good relationship. It's almost like family now, you know, and. The chemistry was right from day one, and we're not afraid to critique each other and, and be honest about uh, what we're doing together. So I think first and foremost, you need to meet or work with people that want the same thing that you want. That's fascinating. You need to meet and spend time with the person that you want to work with. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, you know, I, I very often compare it to, to, to dating. You know, if you want to get married, it's, you know, yeah, internet dating and everything can work. And there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not as good as the real thing. You know, you need to meet people face to face and spend time with them in order to know whether this is a partner you want to have in your life for for a long time. And, you know, sometimes I've, I've also bought from farms that we don't buy from anymore. And sometimes this kind of relationship just doesn't work out because, you know, it wasn't a match made in heaven. And that's that's also OK, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's quite astounding to hear your sort of absolute passion for knowing the farmer and actually knowing the person that you're buying coffee with and working with that farmer. I think it's actually uh, just a note on that before we leave that topic. I think, you know, it's twofold for me. One part is knowing that the quality will be good, you know, because it's produced in a certain way. So it's part of my quality control. And yeah. the second thing is it gives me actually more pleasure to drink a coffee where I know how it's produced and who has produced it. I know the story behind it rather than, you know, just buying a, the top lot from an auction that I have no idea who's behind it. You know, it doesn't give me that kind of intellectual pleasure of when I drink the coffee. So for me, coffee quality has become more than just a flavor in the cup. It's also the story behind it. One thing that I think is really important, if we're talking careers in coffee, careers on the farm, careers at origin, there are a lot of views out there that, you know, coffee isn't a viable career for many people. A lot of farmers don't really want to send their children, you know, onto the farm. They'd rather send them out to get educated and, and work other places. What do you feel about the prospects of jobs and careers at Origin? Well, this is a very complicated uh, topic because there are opportunities, you know. If you know what you're doing, there are opportunities. But for most farmers... That's not the case. And most farmers in the world sell cheap coffee to the main market for less than the cost of producing it. <laughs> so, you know, that's not encouraging for anyone to continue with coffee. And then you have the kind of more niche uh, world that we are in, where if you have access to good seeds, you have uh, land with good potential, meaning it has good altitude and climate, good soils and uh, you have some know-how or access to know-how, you can be capable of producing a high-quality coffee, but it doesn't mean that you're capable of selling that high-quality coffee for a sustainable price. So you kind of need to have a network as well of sellers and buyers and other farmers. And It's difficult. 
you know, I have hope. I have a very good friend in Colombia who is now married to Elias's daughter. Elias is the one that I'm buying coffee from. And he's also a barista champion in Colombia several times. And he has now bought a farm together with his wife and wants to start producing specialty coffee. And he sent me the first two samples from his farm just two weeks ago. And the coffee was very average, you know, it was good commercial quality, I would say, but nothing else. So now the work starts, you know, now we need to start searching for better seeds so he can plant better varieties, planting shades, working hard in order to improve that quality. And that's not done in a year, it's maybe a 10 year project, but he knows that eventually he will be able to produce a very high quality coffee. And it's a matter of getting enough finance to stay alive throughout those 10 years. <laughs> Maybe it will happen before, we don't know, but... And then once he has the good coffee, you know, the customers doesn't just come by themselves. You need to find them. And, and in my experience, there's a lot of customers who say they want to have the best coffees and pay a good price, but the, when the bill comes on the table, they don't want to pay for it, you know? So I have hopes, but I'm also quite disappointed, I would say, in our industry that we're not able to create better incentives for farmers to continue growing high quality coffee. Because we say that price is an incentive, but at the end of the day, most buyers don't pay a good price, unfortunately. Mm. It doesn't seem like it's an easy one to, to solve because it requires a total industry solution that everyone has to buy into really. Yeah. I, I could absolutely see in the, in the farms that you're buying from, they must be doing pretty well relative to to commodity farmers. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, uh, for Elias, for instance, and you know, his daughter is in university, his son is in university. Those are opportunities that they might not have had until they started focusing on quality. And I'm not the only coffee buyer there, but I, I have been buying coffee from them since 2012 for a good price. You know, we know it's a good price because at the end of the year, he still has some money he can invest in his farm and you know, in his house and, and so on, you know, paying the prices that I'm paying is not necessarily sustainable for all businesses. Uh, so you kind of have to look at both ways. And, but, you know, I think, you know, the least we can do is to at least pay the cost price for the coffee. Yeah. <laughs> that should be a minimum, you know, and today the, because of the, how the market is working, that's not always the case. And that also goes for high quality coffee, actually, because it's hard to pinpoint what the cost of production is when you're focusing on higher quality and uh, sometimes the prices that are offered might be a higher price than the market price which is the sea market which is for commodity coffee but it might not be uh, a sustainable price for producing high quality coffee so it's a very complex subject and you know i think unfortunately i've seen uh, in the last two years also that the high quality coffee industry that we like to call specialty coffee industry are getting more and more into cheaper coffees as well because the competition is getting harder in in our markets so and i think that's you know the worst thing we can do is to start buying cheaper and lower qualities the worst thing we can do is to start buying cheaper <laughs> coffees yeah i yeah. think so because we're trying to sell it as something premium and then if you're not buying premium quality green coffee then you're basically a charlatan <laughs> yeah so tell us a little bit about the what does transparency mean for you and how are you applying that in your business? I think since 2010, we have published a transparency report, which, you know, it's not 
Calling it a transparency report is probably a little bit misleading. We are publishing the prices we paid for the coffees we bought. That's what we're doing. And we do that because, at least in the beginning, we had a lot of customers saying, oh, your coffee is so expensive, you know, why should we pay these prices? And then we had to kind of explain, you know, the market price, let's say it's $1.50, the cost price for producing is $1.50. There's nothing sustainable about that at all. So if you want to have good quality coffee, it needs more care and attention, and then you need to pay a better price. And of course, then we also, we're a small company, so... We have to charge more because we are roasting less per batch than a huge commercial roaster and so on. So that's kind of a one part of it. But for me, the most important part is that I have direct communication with the farmers. And when we agree on a price, they know what they can expect in terms of dollars in their pockets. You know, <laughs> we, we use middlemen because everyone has to. You have, you have to use an exporter you know, logistics companies and so on. But as long as everyone in the chain knows where the money goes, that's kind of the goal of being transparent, I think. And for me, it's not so much anymore to convince the end consumer to buy our coffee, you know. And consumers care more about, you know, the coffee being good or not. And if they feel like they're getting a good value for money. But it, for me now, these kind of transparency reports and it's more to motivate the industry, you know, to inspire the industry to, yes, you can pay 50 cents more for the coffee and you can sell it, you know, for a dollar more per pound in your story. You totally can if the quality is there and you have paid a good price and you know that it's a good quality product. You don't have to always pay less, you know, you can also pay more because it really helps uh, the farmers. And the reason why I'm doing it is because I want to secure my supplies for the future. So... If I was to work with, say, five farms in uh, Central America and I constantly pay them below cost price, you know, after a couple of years, they wouldn't supply me anymore, which is not <laughs> good for my business. Yeah. So it's such a basic matter of respect. You know, when you buy milk from your milk company, you know, normally they dictate the price. Maybe you can negotiate a little bit, but normally, you know, they charge what they need to charge. Whereas uh, in the coffee industry, it's been the opposite. We say, oh, we're going to pay this and you have to accept it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, you know, in, if, if a customer came into a coffee shop and said, you know, I'm going to pay a dollar for your cappuccino and you have to accept it, I would not make the cappuccino to the customer. And that's the end of the story. There is a fundamental imbalance between us drinking coffee in the Western world and the people that are actually providing the coffee in, you know, developing contexts. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's a matter of trying to make a difference for at least some people, you know, and, and we as a small company, we're capable of doing it and we, we are trying to do it as well. And it actually has made our lives a lot easier here because when we know we're going to get very high quality green coffee, it makes the life as a roaster and a barista much easier because you can make small mistakes and the coffee will still taste very good, you know. <laughs> ah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely critical that, that you know, that it's, it's smart business to pay more for your coffee. It's very clever. Yeah, at least it's working for us. <laughs> yeah, it's win-win and that, that's fantastic. Just thinking back to the world of the coffee bar, the, the careers in coffee back in sort of Western worlds, and if you were to give a, an advice for some young person wanting to get into coffee. <laughs> wow, it's difficult. I mean, for me, it's... It's not just about working hard, but also working a little smart. And for me, you know, the, the real 
career game changer for me has to be a person that wants to learn and wants to share my knowledge all the time. That's always put me in positions where I get opportunities. There's no secrets in coffee. Everyone wants to learn more, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> if you're a person who, who wants to learn more and also wants to help other people learn more, uh, it really can boost your uh, learning curve because every time I teach someone something, I get you know strange questions that I've never thought of before and then I have to research it and then I learn more on my own. So having a kind of an open mind and not being kind of finished in the learning process, that's very important, I think. Well, wonderful. I think that's just amazing. Tim Wenderboa, an international icon for quality, precision, perfection, transparency, understanding, but also that personal connection to the farmer. Quite an extraordinary journey. Thanks for sharing time with us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, and that's all for this week's Fifth Wave podcast. Please get in touch and let us know what topics are important to you so we can make this podcast more relevant to you and your business. You can follow the link in the show notes to worldcoffeeportal.com slash fifth wave. And don't forget to subscribe to the Fifth Wave podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serendipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and sound engineering by Chris Brister. Theme music is Coffee Cold, written by Galt McDermott and interpreted by Matt Ken for the Coffee Music Project. Happy 2021. Have a great week. And until next time, stay safe and stay caffeinated. <laughs>